I remember going to this young lady's house and I was doing her hair and I remember telling her, do not move because the water that I'm going to use to dip the ends of your hair to get the style to set is so hot that you can boil a pot of noodles in it. And I remember her just looking so terrified. But again, as Black women, we have been fed this narrative for our whole lives that beauty hurts, that beauty is pain. Hi, Offscripters. It's your host, Sewa Ajay Pele, and welcome to episode 138 of the She's Offscript podcast. This is a show where we hear and learn from women who've created unique blueprints for their business success. My hope is that you'll hear their stories and translate their gems into a unique path for yourself. In today's episode, we meet Tiffany Gatlin, who's the founder and CEO of Latched and Hooked Beauty. If you're a Black woman, you've probably worn a crochet hairstyle. Tiffany invented the loop end we now see on most crochet hair. Today, her clean beauty company manufactures non-toxic, ready-to-wear synthetic hair extensions. During my conversation with Tiffany, she shares her journey to creating Latched and Hooked after her first business partnership fell apart. She walks us through how she manufactures and negotiates in the Asian market. She shares her most effective organic marketing strategies and so much more. Get out your pens and notebooks because trust me, this is a gem-filled episode. Before we hear the rest of Tiffany's story, I would love it if you could subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. This will help to spread the word about our show so amazing stories like Tiffany's can continue to inspire women looking to launch their own off-script journeys. With that, let's go off-script with the founder and CEO of Latched and Hooked Beauty, Tiffany Gatlin. Tiffany Gatlin, welcome to She's Off Script. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so delighted to be with you and your community. Of course. So for anyone who hasn't heard of you or Latched and Hooked, could you share who you are and what you do? Sure. So my name is Tiffany Gatlin, and I am the founder of Latched and Hooked Beauty. And we are a scalp-first brand. And so we use hair extensions as a vehicle to communicate and educate to Black women how to care for their scalp and how to use products that help them to feel their most confident self. You know, our vision is to to make beauty simple for Black women. And, you know, we feel like we're doing that by creating products that don't sacrifice your confidence, your skin, or your health. And I love that mission, especially since for so long, we've just taken whatever has been on the market as Black women and have kind of thought this is just the way it needs to be if we're going to get our protective styling. I honestly think we'd be remiss if we didn't cover the fact that you've been on this entrepreneurial journey for 11 years. You started in finance and left without a plan. So let's start your story there before we dive into all the gems that you have around starting a million dollar business, not once, but twice. So tell us, why did you leave your job in corporate America? So I actually, I mean, I love corporate America. I loved my job at Bank of America. I was assistant vice president of consumer and small business banking. It was a, a great segue into, you know, having a corporate professional job out of college, graduated from Clark Atlanta University in Atlanta, and thought I was going to law school and didn't do as well on the LSAT that I, you know, that I expected that I would and didn't have a plan B. 
Mm. And so ended up in finance, definitely did not seek that out. I say finance sought me out. And, you know, I, I credit my time at Bank of America to me being developing myself as a leader, as a young leader. I was a young professional. I was in my 20s when I started at Bank of America. I became a new mom in my 20s. And so I was really getting to know myself and what I loved and, you know, what I wanted to be, so to speak. And so Bank of America definitely just helped me to develop into a professional. It helped me to understand how to communicate better with a wide range of people with different backgrounds and expectations. And, and I, I, I love that, but I just knew that there was something that was missing. I knew that there wasn't space for my creativity. Mm. You know, it was, I was supposed to be more of a doer versus, you know, being a person that has really great ideas and being able to bring those ideas and hopefully seeing them come to fruition. And so I moved around a couple times um, within Bank of America and each time, you know, I did well, I did very well, but again, it just wasn't feeding the creative aspect that I knew that I had. Right. And so I just wanted to do more, you know, I, and I also just didn't believe that, you know, I was designed to work in one place for the rest of my life and then just retire. And that was Mm. just the trajectory of my life. So I somehow convinced my husband that, you know, I can be a successful entrepreneur and I decided to leave. And you're right. I did not have a plan. I, I, you know, a lot of people have these stories about how they had all this money saved up and, you know, how they followed this blueprint and all of that. And I didn't have that at all. I thought that I was going to, and when I left Bank of America, I thought I was going to create the next Instacart before Instacart was Instacart. And so I went out to create a, a concierge service. And that didn't go so well, but, you know, I, again, it was, I had an idea, you know, I knew that there was a need to create something for busy professionals. I just didn't know how to flush it out. You know, there weren't many like incubators and accelerators. And if they were, they weren't as widely promoted as they are today. There weren't, you know, any business communities for black women to, you know, to rally around. This was like almost 12 years ago. Right. So there, they, all of these little things that, that exist today and are very valuable today didn't exist back then when I was moving into the entrepreneur space. So and you were so, just kind of hustling, trying different things to see what would stick. Absolutely. I was literally just figuring it out. And I knew that I was the type of person that, you know, I definitely took my college motto to, to heart, find a way or make one. So I'm definitely that type of person that, you know, I'm going to figure it out. And I definitely couldn't let my family down either, you know, mm-hmm. because here it is, I left my job, you know, making six figures in, in this job. And then all of a sudden going to nothing coming in every month. And we definitely worked in a household that required two incomes, mm-hmm. you know, because of the lifestyle that we had acquired over the time. And so, you know, it made my husband nervous, you know, that the money that I did have, you know, from taking out of my 401k, that it was depleting quickly. Mm-hmm. And we had to make some decisions. And so, you know, overall, that's I, I left because I knew that I could bring more into, you know, I could provide more into, you know, this, 
economic, you know, atmosphere that we live in, I just felt like I could contribute more and I really wanted to, to give more. So you went from the concierge service to doing hair on the side. And then there was even a magazine somewhere in there. Yeah. So I actually, from the concierge, I actually moved into digital media. Mm. I figured out that's when like the, the boom of Twitter was happening. And I don't think Instagram was quite out yet, but Twitter was definitely booming. And I figured out how to maneuver Twitter mm-hmm. and how to amass a large following and how to get celebrities to talk back. Like I figured that out mm-hmm. and I figured out that I was really good at it. And I was already a great writer. And so using my love for writing, I was able to figure out like, wow, I'm really good at the social media thing. And I was, you know, getting thousands of followers by just spewing information that I was finding from research. And so I then kind of evolved into a influencer blogger. And I started writing articles for Essence and I started covering Essence Festival. I started working with big brands and developing campaigns for them that specifically targeted millennials. That is actually what I did, you know, when I left, you know, when I decided that the concierge was actually not going to (laughs) work for me. And then it actually brought in money, which is good. Yeah. And, you know, but what I realized is that you know, although the blogging thing didn't initially checks and that was the thing, it brought in opportunities and there's a big difference. And I think, you know, I, I see the influencers that are out there today and they want the check really fast. But the thing about it is that's not the trajectory of being an influencer. That's not technically how it happened. So you have to kind of like put in your due diligence and put in that work and, and show that you are you are a trusted voice and a trusted source. And so I went through this, you know, many years of of writing and and getting, you know, free trips and free products and things like that. I was like, I need some money. Yeah. You know, I got kids, I have a mortgage, I have car notes, I need money. And so that's how the hair kind of entered into the picture because I started thinking about what are some other things that I am really good at Mm-hmm. that I can do while doing this too. Cause I really enjoyed this part of it. And I'm not, and I, I didn't start doing it because of the money, because I didn't even know that you could actually make money from being a blogger, but I did it because I loved it. Mm-hmm. And, but I needed something else that I can do, which I felt was the really cool thing about being on my own and being an entrepreneur is that I could really do more than one thing. I don't think we're really taught that we could do more than one thing. I think we're taught that you do one thing and do it very well and you make money from it. But the one thing that I really enjoyed about entrepreneurship is that I could really benefit from all the different skills that I had. So I started doing different things to to generate income. And Mm -hmm. so one of those things that I started doing was going back to protective hairstyling, which is something that I did when I was in high school. And especially around there, the natural hair movement was really booming. People were on YouTube sharing, this is how I'm going natural, doing the big chop. And so then you found yourself, I like how you tell the story about how you're working with a client who you imagined you could have burned and gotten sued. So walk us through that time. Yeah. So it was during the holidays and my husband, my family, we were going to Mississippi for Mm. the holidays. And I'm like, God, if I'm going to be in Mississippi for like almost a week, I need to 
do something because Mississippi is, you know, not like the most, you know, exciting hustle and bustle place that you go and visit. So I had to figure out, you know, what, what could I do for the week and how could I make some money while I was there? And so I remember putting out a flyer saying that I was going to be in Mississippi and that I was going to be doing crochet hairstyling. And at that time, like people weren't really like they were doing it DIY style in their home, but you didn't really have a lot of hairstylists that were, that were doing this style because it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. Like nobody wanted to take on the liability. And so I said, you know, I'm going to Mississippi. I'm coming from Atlanta. People think Atlanta is really cool. I'm going to Mississippi. They're going to, you know, want me to do their hair. And I did, I, I believe I had six appointments lined up and that was really good for me at that time. And, and so I remember going to this young lady's house and I was doing her hair and I remember telling her, do not move because the water that I'm going to use to dip the ends of your hair to get the, this, this style to set is so hot that you can boil a pot of noodles in it. I'm just giving you the perspective of how hot this water is. I'm going to dip your head. I have these towels around you. Mm -hmm. Don't move. Cause if you move, you're going to burn yourself, you know? And I remember her just looking so terrified, you know, because the things we do for hair. Whew. Right. But again, as black women, we are all, we have been fed this narrative for our whole lives that beauty hurts. Yeah. You know, that beauty is pain. Beauty all is the pain. Way back to, all the way back to when our grandmothers and moms was flattening our, in our hair or with that you know, hot comb. The hot comb. Sizzling your hair. Sizzling ah. your ear. And, you know, all this, and you get burnt on your neck or behind your ear or on your cheek or whatever. And that was supposed to be, you know, okay. Mm -hmm. But I remember that this young lady just looking terrified. And what ended up happening when I did, you know, I told her to, to pull her head to the side, the steam from the water is what made her jump because that steam was so hot. She jumped. And it was at that, that moment that I said, you know, mm, yeah, this, it's got to be a better way. Right. This is not going to work. <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to get sued. I don't have a license, which I didn't have to have one in Georgia to do any protective styles because I wasn't used to chemicals. But I'm just like, eh, it's had to be a better way. And so I thought about, you know, I remember on the ride home, I was thinking about like, what if the hair was already curled? You know, what if the hair was curled and you all you had to do was just take the curl out of the box and crochet it in your head. Now, at this time, this was 2014, and there was no crochet on the market. You know, so was the yours the first? It was the first. Was Man, the those first. copycats were really quick, but I'm getting ahead. Well, wait, yeah, two years it took them to, to, co to copycat because it okay. came out in 2000. The product came out in 2015. And I remember the first time, and this, I went into a beauty supply store, had never gone in this beauty supply store ever before. I remember going into this beauty supply store. I know I'm jumping, mm. but so yes, my product was the first on the market. I know it's hard to believe people are like, really, really? I'm like, yes, there was no crochet. Yeah. No curls, locks, braids, no, nothing crochet with a loop in the, in the store, all you could buy was synthetic hair. And so when I created the pre-curled and looped hair, I created it because I did not want to see black women showing other black women potentially how to burn themselves. Mm -hmm. And I wanted something that was going to be safer. 
for us to be able to use. I know I wanted something safer. So I know mm-hmm. if I was thinking that, I, you know, I knew that other Black women were thinking that. And then also, too, I knew that <laughs> there were a lot of Black women out there that did not know how to roll their hair around a rod. Yeah. You didn't get that perfectly. That style was not going to come out cute. <laughs> and your coils were just just perfect. perfect. So, <laughs> so to tell me how you went from having the idea, having the experience and know-how on how to do hair to then seeking out a partner to grow this business with. So, and you're talking about a partner as in like a co-founder? Yeah, your co-founder, yes. So I think it was just... A situation, and I think a lot of people can probably attest to this or, or, you know, have had this feeling. When you think about an idea that feels so grand and so bigger than you, Mm -hmm. like I said, remember, there wasn't any crochet on the market, you know? So trying to, to, to create something which I had never created anything like this before, never created anything where I had to get a manufacturer involved, wasn't sure how I was going to sell it to people, mm-hmm. you know, wasn't worried about people buying it because I felt like I had the audience that I had amassed from the whole, you know, influencer situation mm-hmm. and me, you know, gaining the followers. But I just didn't know, like, what do I do? Like, how do I sell it? Do I, you know, do people come pick it up? Like, you know, and so I think that you get so scared by your own ideas that you think that you, it, the journey would be better if somebody comes along with you. Mm. And so that's where I was in that situation. When I was driving back from Mississippi, you know, in that six hour drive and thinking in my head, like, I want to do this, but I'm scared to do it alone. Who could I ask that would want to do this with me? Mm-hmm. And so the co-founder that I found, it was somebody that I knew from Instagram, didn't necessarily know her personally, but I knew that she loved, you know, crochet styling. She loved protective hair styling. And I remember mentioning to her like, hey, I have this idea. Like, I don't, It probably sounds real crazy, but what if there was hair that was already pre-curled and had a loop at the top. And the loop is very important. A lot yeah. of people don't realize, but the loop is very important in the creation of, the pro- of my product because the loop was to be an indicator and an identifier for the customer as to where you start the style. Mm-hmm. And so I know that that's, you know, what's popular in the world today, pre-curled and loop. So did you not get it patented? Why is it that so, everyone was able to just jump on and copy it? So I think that there's a misconception about patent. So yes, the, the idea was patented and we have a, a, a patent on the curl, mm. but it's not enough to have a patent. And also too, when you get a patent, you are protected in the United States. And a lot uh. of the patents are, uh, I mean, a lot of the products, sorry, are created in, you know, overseas. And so you have that variable and then also, too, if you try to enforce your patent, you better have the money to be able to fight the patent. Exactly. So as a small startup, it's like, what, what do you do? If someone bigger copies it, what do you do? What are you going to do? You have, you have the choice of whether or not you're going to spend a lot of money in court mm-hmm. or attorney fees to enforce your patent. And you're talking about really big companies who've been in business for five decades. Yeah. You have a lot of money 
and can make a lot of things happen. And you're just starting. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they're coming on the market cheaper, which was something else we found in the, in the beauty stores. But so your, at that point, your business had quite a few headwinds that you were dealing with. So not only were you a small company that was just starting, you also had a market of copycats that were rushing and kind of trying to crowd you out of the market. But then yeah. also internally, there was strife with the partner that you had brought on board. So mm-hmm. How did that partnership ultimately end the company that you had started? Because at this point, you had grown a million-dollar company. Yeah, a multi-million-dollar company, actually. Mm. The thing is that, so it definitely was probably, you know, one of the lowest points, you know, in Mm. my business career (laughs) as an entrepreneur. But the, gr- the good thing about it is that we had, we were able to be in the market for two years before there was any competition that came in the market. So mm-hmm. we had basically solidified our space in the market two years prior to any other companies creating the pre-corona Luter. So that was really good because consumers were able to see that, hey, this company is black owned. You know, these two women, you know, are selling this product. And people knew the name. It was mm-hmm. different. It was yeah. a name that I made up. <laughs> I just put two two words together mm-hmm. and I made it up, which made the name trademarkable. So the mm-hmm. name was trademarked. The curls were patented. We were, you know, I was using my story in terms of why I wanted to bring this to market. So that really helped because- people, Very relatable. Yeah, mm-hmm. people resonated with the story. And, you know, I was- Prior to this product coming out, I was posting pictures on Instagram of, you know, me doing other people's hair and, you know, the curls and all of this. So people mm-hmm. just really related to the story. It, you know, it was it was a sour part in, in entrepreneurship. But now that I look back on it, it was a very necessary situation that needed to happen because Mm -hmm. I'm able to help other entrepreneurs who may be going through something similar. You know, I get you know, tapped on to talk about partnerships and, you know, uh, patents and all kinds of things, because I actually, I went through it. So maybe let's pause here and maybe share some of the gems you have around picking a partner and how to structure a partnership. So it doesn't disintegrate to, you know, really a person's worst nightmare where you end up spending a couple nights in jail for your business, right? It's- Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of what I went through was me fighting for what I knew that I deserved. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know if a lot of people probably would have went, you know, a lot of people probably just maybe would have walked away and said, whatever, forget it. I'll do something else. You know, it's not worth it or what have you. But I spent three years in court fighting for my business. And, you know, and a lot of people say, well, did you win? Did you win? I, I mean, do you really win if you don't really get back what you created? I don't know, mm-hmm. if, you know, but I was able to, you know, sell my business to another another beauty brand who is taking the brand on and continuing what I would have wanted it to be, you know? Mm -hmm. So for that, I think I'm grateful. And it's always, it's going to always be a part of my legacy. I can't really talk about who I am or where I am right now without actually talking about that business. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it is what it is, but I think that the, the advice that I would give to others who are, you know, looking for partners and, 
and, you know, going through partner issues or what have you. I think, you know, you have to look at when you find a co-founder, it's really like marrying someone, you know, it's very similar in that. You really need to know who your co-founder is, you know, you really need to get an attorney on board before you start signing documents because you really need to understand what a partnership is going to mean five, 10 years down the line. Before mm-hmm. you even start making any money, you need to get an attorney involved and understand what the relationship is going to be and how each person is going to participate in the business, what their roles are going to be, what happens when conflict comes into the picture, because it will. I was naive to think like, oh no, we're it's going to be great. It's going to be fine. Everything's, you know, because you're, you're just excited. Right. You, know? mm-hmm. you just want to do business, you know? But when big but, money enters the scene. But when big money enters the scene, mm. trust me, things start to happen. So it's before you make any one penny, you need to really decide and understand like how the business is going to, you know, be operated. How does conflict resolution happen in your business? You know, is there going to be a third person that decides if the two of you can't decide? You need to decide, you know, the percentages that each person is going to have in the business. I didn't know at the time that 50-50 should never be, you know, that's not how you should uh, divide a business. You should never divide 50-50. I didn't know that. So those are just a few of the things that I would recommend, you know, when you're thinking about going. And then just really think about, like, if you're going into business with a friend or family, Are you willing to lose friendship and possibly family over business? Mm. Because it's possible that it can can happen. Yeah. And not saying that it will, but just think, even bringing that question up, if it's not worth it, then I would probably stay clear of asking that person to be a co-founder. Right. And Um, just think, can I do this by myself? which is what ultimately you have done in turning around and starting another business. Yeah. You can definitely do it by yourself. I mean, you can do it by yourself, no matter how hard you think it is, you can do it by yourself. You don't need a co-founder. And I think that, you know, you know, well, let me say this, you can do it by yourself. You don't, you might not necessarily, maybe you do need a co-founder, you know, but it's not because you can't do it by yourself. You know, you just may need a co-founder because you need to be able to divide up some of the responsibilities that need to take place in your business. Mm-hmm. So I think you just need to be very clear on why you need a co-founder. Not that I need a co-founder because I can't do this by myself. I need a co-founder because I need to be able to split up some of the responsibilities in this business to be able to scale effectively. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. And also so you can operate in your zone of genius and Absolutely. get someone else who can divide and conquer in their zone of genius. Absolutely. So. Now you've built yet another multi-million dollar business. How did you make that transition? Because you said this was the lowest point in your entrepreneurial journey, maybe even in your life at that point. How did you pick yourself up enough to then build this next business? So I want to make a, qu- a quick correction. We are not a million dollar business yet. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. I think I'd seen some numbers that you were reaching that point. Not yet, but we okay. are We are definitely trending that way. We are a six figure business soon to be seven. And, you know, and I, and I want to make that clear because I want to show people that, you know, it's not, you know, it, it doesn't happen quickly. It's not overnight. I think mm-hmm. that I had a little bit of luck with my last business in the, it was the first into mm-hmm. market. 
Mm -hmm. it was something that wasn't on the market. It was something that I knew definitely black women needed and I didn't have competition. Mm -hmm. And that is a unicorn situation, you know, and that's why that business was able to be a multi-million dollar business in a very short amount of time. With Mm -hmm. this business, you know, with Latched and Hooked, it is, you know, not only is my competition my first business (laughs) that I created, they are my competition, but I also have a plethora of other competitors in the space. And, you know, I had to just, you know, people were confused initially when I came in because they were like, wait, is this a subsidiary of this company? Like, they were just confused, mm-hmm. you know? And so I really had to really think about what was the mission of this company and what what did I want to see done differently? And I just really had to understand what the mission and the vision of this company was to be. And so I'm learning new things, you know, that I didn't know before, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm having you know, a whole new experience. And so it's really beautiful to really be able to be in this position that I am today and really continue the legacy that I started, but in a more, in a deeper and more meaningful way this time around. Mm -hmm. And I would say the thing I love about your mission is the focus on the clean side of things, because for so long, I think Black women have accepted what is that when I put the synthetic hair on my head, it's going to itch. And it's itching because there's really no regard for the the level of chemicals that are put in there. And that's something that you're rectifying with your product. Or to the fact that you're thinking about the scalp cleanliness, which is not something that necessarily goes hand in hand. When you're at the beauty supply store, you're getting something. There's just no, I don't know, there's no relationship there, which is something that you bring with your brand. Now, something that I, I think sets you apart is that you are manufacturing this. This is not a distributor situation. So how did you go about finding a manufacturer in China? So obviously I had a little bit of a leg up because obviously I had a previous business. And so I actually took an employee that worked at the manufacturer that I was dealing with with my first business. She was really good. She was like one of our account managers and she was leaving and we had a really good relationship. And she was like, you know, I just want to let you know that I'm leaving. And I was like, wait, where are you going? And she was like, I think I'm just going to, you know, maybe try to start something on my own. And then I asked her, would she come and work with me? Because I Mm -hmm. needed someone who understood what I was doing. I needed an inside person. I really needed her to help me to continue to navigate the space in China. And so she said, we'll try it out. And here we, here we are, you know, five years later. And, you know, she's like one of, I would, you know, right now she's, she's like family to me, you know. Oh, that's good. So Uh, what are the things that she's helping you navigate that might be difficult for someone who's doing it from this end in the U.S.? Yeah. So she's responsible for helping us to find original manufacturers who deal with original design. Hmm. So anytime we're bringing a product to market, typically I'm designing something, I'm sending them the prototype, and then I need it made. And so what's really important to me is diversifying our manufacturers because I never want a situation where all of my products are made in the same place. Mm -hmm. In the event that they shut down, you know, 
something happens, like I want to just know that I can go to another manufacturer and they're producing a product. And even if I have to add a new product, they're, they're, they're used to the way that we're creating products. So they know, you know, how we expect our product, the end result to be in our product. So her job is to find the manufacturers that we can work with who would take our specifications and create product. She's responsible for pricing. It's really difficult as a black woman to try to negotiate with with the Asian market because they automatically want to increase our prices. Mm. And so when she goes in and she negotiates for us, she's negotiating, you know, with someone that looks like her. And so they're not, in, you know, they're not inflating the prices. Don't um, they know she's working on your behalf though? No. No? Okay. That's, that's definitely a leg up for you then. Yeah. So we definitely keep that. Now, typically what I do is after we've worked with the manufacturer for a few years, obviously we want to begin to create a more solid relationship. Mm -hmm. And we talk about, you know, exclusivity and creating, you know, products that, well, our products are exclusive to us, but we, we also want to try to lock down the market specifically on certain products. So we're talking to them about, you know, trying to not have them sell those same type of products to someone else if they were to come in because we want products that are exclusive to Latch and Hook. So there is a little bit of undercover that has to happen initially because I want them to see the volume that we're doing. And I want them to get so stuck on how much business that we're doing versus getting stuck on who we are initially. Exactly. And so she helps us also with the quality control. So before the product is actually sent to Atlanta, she inspects all of our products for us to make sure that, you know, it's the way that we expect it to be when it gets here. Okay. So that's the manufacturing side of things. And clearly you already knew how it worked and you were able to implement it. But now as you look to grow the company, you've already, as you said, had the experience with growing a social media following. What is your approach now as you're growing this side of the business really into the multi-million dollar level next? Mm -hmm. Um, Community. Mm. You know, community is, is our key focus. Without our customers and without the community, I do not see us being able to grow into, you know, our our seven and eight figure status. Our customers is, you know, they are what makes us, you know, shake, move, become popular. And so it's us creating a strategy and a plan around community mm. and more organic, more organic, strategic acquisition growth plans. Okay. However, are you using ads? Because I think ads in the hair space seem to be very popular, especially if you're using user-generated content or doing more of show and tell type of ads. So is that a strategy that you guys are employing? So sure. Yeah, it's definitely a strategy that we've implemented. However, I can say within the last couple of months, we've dialed back on our ad spend. Why is that? And, um, because what I really wanted to know is were the ads really as effective as just being able to reach out to our customers in a more organic way. Mm-hmm. And so what I found like currently right now, 50, 57% of our revenue has come from organic effort. Email marketing is really big for us. I use a lot of storytelling in email to really communicate with our customers and really help them to understand not only our products, 
So I do a lot of education, a lot of empowerment, telling just my story over and Mm -hmm. over again in different ways and just really helping them to see that I'm just at the end of the day, I'm just like them, you know, exactly type of issues trying to create resolutions for that. And so whereas, yes, paid advertising, you know, is important. I think for me, it's more important for traffic purposes, but I love the organic side because it really allows me to really get to know my customer. So when you say organic, what specifically are you doing to drive that organic traffic? So we have several different ways. One of one of the ways that I really love currently right now is doing customer takeovers. And that's mm. where I take over my customer's Instagram or Facebook account. And I talk to their community of friends and family and I tell them my story and tell them how I started. And I tell them about my products and, you know, with hopes that we gain new traffic, new customers who had never heard of us before. I'm definitely borrowing that one. That's a good one. What's the next one? And then we have other things, like I said before, the the emails, the text messaging. We have a VIP club for customers who, who spend over a certain amount. And so I'm more active with that community. We have a customer only Facebook group. We have a perk points reward program. We have our business to business side where we, you know, really get immersed with our hairstylists and hair salons. So yeah, those are, you know, some of the ways we implement our organic strategy. That's a lot. What does your support structure look like right now? Yeah. So it definitely isn't just me. Yeah. I definitely can't take take credit for that. But, you know, to be able to make all these things move, you definitely have to have support staff to be able to navigate this. So, you know, us having a digital strategist, someone who who operates all of our uh, paid media, so our Facebook, Google ads, those things. So they create all of that. I have someone who is over partnerships and collaborations. And so her whole job is to strengthen the B2B side. I'm more of the consumer side, the direct to consumer side. So I create all the strategy for, you know, our direct to consumer strategies. Fulfillment is a whole nother beast in itself. And we have someone who handles the fulfillment and the organization and the importing and, you know, all of that. So, you know, being able to, to understand how your business moves and, you know, and, and having the growth strategy, like having a growth strategy for me and ha- and looking at my growth strategy and looking at it by quarter to understand like how these different strategies over each quarter impacts my whole year is really important. Mm. So you did recently, and this is at the end of last year, receive funding from Google startups. And what is that going to mean for your growth? What what is it going to help you accomplish as you look to grow your company? So getting the funding from Google had, first of all, it let me know that they believed in what we were doing for black women. You know, this was the first time that the biggest tech company in the world has given money to a black founder who is, you know, creating hair extensions for black women. Yeah. (laughs) So it really solidified that what we were doing was meaningful. Mm -hmm. And what it's helping us do is, you know, we were able to move into, you know, a really large establishment where we could function appropriately and be able to import our goods and really come up with a really great strategy to be able to, you know, get all of our products in order and ship out within one to two business days, help us develop new products 
Um, we have some other products that are in the works that we're really excited about coming out with. I'm excited um, about the scalp massager. I can't wait to try that one. Yes. The scalp soothie was one of the things that we were able to bring to life with the money that we got from Google. You know, hiring more staff and, and more people to really bring my vision to life, being able to spend more money on, you know, the ads to get more traffic and to increase our ROAS for that. It just really helped us to get in the position to grow and, and be attractive to investors. Mm. So are you going to be going on a fundraising round now? At some point, yes. Okay, well, we'll look forward to that because clearly this is something that we as Black women need. And I'm glad the community is rising up to support you. So for anyone who's interested in following your journey as you're growing your business, where can they find you? Sure. So, I mean, if you did a quick search of Latched and Hooked, Tiffany Gatlin, there are a plethora of, you know, interviews and articles and this podcast to be one. And, but you can also find us at latchinghook.com. You can follow me on any social media platforms at Tiffany Gatlin and that's T-I-F-F-I-N-I. And yeah, those are the most uh, frequent places that you could find me. And um, I'm very responsive. And so I'd love to have a conversation with you. Want to hit me up on social media, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today, Tiffany. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hi, Offscripters. I'm so glad you made it to the end of this episode. If you enjoy listening to our show, please pay it forward by sharing us with your network. Between episodes, you can find me on Instagram. Our handle is at She's Offscript, or you can catch up on past episodes at She's Offscript.com. See you on the next one.